Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi, everybody. This is Engage 360 again from Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne, and we are glad you are with us. We're really honored today to have a return guest, our friend and colleague, Dr. Heather Gingrich, who is professor of counseling here at Denver Seminary and has been here uh, since, what, 15, 16 years? 15 and a half. 15 and a half. I, yeah. I, was, I was pretty close. Welcome back, Heather. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it is, it is so good to have you here. And we asked Heather back for a conver- conversation because Heather is sort of our resident trauma specialist. Uh, you do know a lot about trauma and have written, I think, a fair bit on that. So I would uh, tell us, while I'm thinking of it, tell us the name of some of the works that you have published on trauma. Sure. Uh, Restoring the Shattered Self, a Christian Counselor's Guide to Complex Trauma is was released in the second edition um, last year. And then my husband, Fred, and I co-edited a book called Treating Trauma in Christian Counseling, where we cover all kinds of trauma, everything we could think of um, from military trauma to disaster trauma to complex trauma, um, just uh, clergy abuse, uh, just almost everything we could think of. So there are chapters on all kinds of trauma in that book, including complex trauma. We've asked Heather for another conversation because as we record this, we're hopefully getting toward the tail end of the COVID epidemic. Uh, hopefully, at least things are declining, and so there are lots of reflections going on now about dealing with the aftermath of COVID, and I thought Heather would be a, a really insightful conversation partner about all of that. So overall, Heather, g- give us a sense of where you think we are personally, spiritually, societally with with COVID and its multiple after effects. How would you diagnose the this, the situation we inhabit right now? That's kind of a hard one. Uh, what I'm picking up just in talking to people and seeing things, listening, uh, is that people are more hopeful now that vaccinations have been started, that there's more hope that this will not be something that we'll face indefinitely, that we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think there are still long-range effects, though. I mean, people aren't out of the woods yet. People are still getting sick. Um, people are still dying. So in that sense, it's not that, whew, it's, it's over. And, and what we don't know is to what extent you know, will it ever be over? Right. You know, what, what will life back to normal look like? Will, will, that, will it forever be changed in some ways? So I think there are a lot of questions. I think there are a lot of people who have been kind of hanging on for for a year and have, you know, most people have acclimatized some to kind of our new normal now, but that doesn't mean that the ramifications don't continue. You know, people have died, their loved ones are gone. You know, in some ways, coming towards maybe an end of the crisis that it's been um, could be difficult for those people you know, or there's a vaccine out. What if, you know, people contact the virus and die now and people will be, well, why did my loved one have to die? 
everyone's rejoicing that COVID is over, but my life will never be the same right. because, you know, or people also recovering financially if they have lost jobs, businesses, you know, that have closed, people have gone bankrupt. You know, those are ongoing ramifications that the immediate crisis, the health crisis may be drawing to a close. But for many people, the impacts are going to be ongoing for a long time. I'm glad you pointed that out because that's uh, that's so easy to miss, isn't it, when the, the more acute or more public manifestations of a crisis die down a bit. Uh, you, life kind of moves on for a lot of people, and it's mm-hmm. easy to overlook the deeper level lingering, I guess, ongo- um, lifelong effects of that, the, the scars, the marks of that, that many, many people live with. Right. So, so for many, it will be a long grieving process right? Um, because of the, the losses that have been ensued you know, during this past year and, and in the coming months, too, perhaps. So when we're dealing with something like this crisis that has gone on for now just about a year or more than that, I guess, depending upon how you count, and you look at the wide variety of effects that it has had, some to use some of your words, more, more inconveniences, some more genuinely and deeply traumatic. What, what, what are some of the unique challenges of, of that kind of a scenario when the effects are so scattered and they're so elongated over time? Well, I think part of it is having to recognize that not everyone's experience has been your experience that experiences really have varied. Okay. Um, this, was, this really struck home to me near the beginning of the crisis when we were needing to teach on Zoom here and a lot of, well, all the children were um, going with Google Classroom or something virtual and, and just how, how different life was for different people. So I would talk to some of my students over Zoom who, who had lost their jobs, who... Um, whose kids were now home, and they didn't know how they were going to both try to work if they had jobs, but continue to study while they're trying to help their their children study. Um, you, you know, so kind of really major impacts even initially in putting people in major crisis. Um, I felt that my husband and I were in kind of some semi-crisis because we hadn't done hardly any teaching on Zoom before, so we were having to figure all that out, and we had a six-year-old who was, we were trying, everyone was scrambling to try to figure out, you know, um, teachers included, how how to do this, especially with little kids, and he does not do well virtually, and so not only was it an education concern, that wasn't even our main concern, it was that his behavior regressed to that of a three-year-old major temper tantrums, behavioral outbursts, Hmm. just um, things we hadn't seen in Hmm. a long, long time, just due to the the stress of going online, not seeing his friends, there are no other children at home, no one to play with. Um, So we were feeling pretty stressed out, but at least we had our jobs. Some of our students didn't have their jobs. And then others of our students were like, you know, this is kind of a nice break. You know, I'm an introvert. I kind of I was, like being at home. I was just going to say, yeah, this is an introvert's dream world, right? Right. Was, so, it was for a while. So for some, for some of them, if they still, if they didn't have financial concerns, if they were able to adjust to 
virtual, whatever they had to do virtually, then they almost felt like it was a little bit of a vacation. And I was really struck with, even within one classroom, the differences and the experiences between these, you know, feeling like this is a mini vacation versus my life is totally falling apart. Yeah, yeah. And and you did say something, too, about, you know, the ongoingness of it. I think there was kind of the initial, for many, a crisis just trying to adjust to what is going on here. How do I buy a mask? I, you know, people are making them, but I don't know how to make make them. Do we really? We have to stay at home. We have to, you know, there, there are all those Those kind of initial things. So I think for, for many people, probably most people, it took a while to just kind of adjust to what, what do we do with all of this? But then again, depending on so many factors, as the months have gone on, um, if, if, um, you're among the fortunate that no one, no loved one has died or been severely impacted and you've kind of learned how to manage in a, our virtual masked world, then the ongoing nature isn't maybe such a big deal. But again, for other people, they're still having difficulty keeping their businesses going. They're, as I mentioned earlier, people have gotten sick or even died or they have ongoing ramifications left from having had COVID mm-hmm. and ongoing you know, physical um, and perhaps emotional um, challenges. So as something goes on, people either can adjust, which is what we generally do with change, but if the stresses are still ongoing, then that can even potentially become more, more difficult or something that wasn't traumatic could actually become traumatic okay. over a period of time. Okay, yeah, those are some of the unseen, the unexpected effects, and, and that really sets us up for uh, what, what I wanted to pick your brain about. We, we see these days lots of uh, kind of popular-level media uh, resources and advice given on surviving COVID and dealing with the aftermath of COVID, and you know, at some point, I, I want us to do some compare and contrast of of all of those popular resources. How do we move past this with with a deeper level gospel resource? That, you know, what is it? What does redemption really mean in all of this? But kind of moving into that, I know you have done some really helpful thinking, uh, kind of dissecting types of trauma in in your all of your background and expertise with trauma. You've done a lot of dissective thinking, uh, breaking trauma or stress or crisis down into different categories. Now, in other words, I think you're, some of your language I've seen is not everything is trauma. Right. And as, as we're working our way towards some, some takeaways for how do we practically lean into the after effects, the long-term lingering effects of this on, on individuals, on society— Let's break it down a little bit diagnostically, if we can. Um, what do we mean when we talk about trauma, when we use that language, and what should we not mean? Uh, I think that's an excellent question because trauma as a term gets thrown around, and sometimes I think that— It's like anything I don't like, right? Right, <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's not really fair to people who have— experienced something more significant and has felt traumatic to them if we kind of throw everything into that category. So 
as I as we talked about a few minutes ago, all of us have experienced some level of, of stress, you know, through the ramifications of COVID and certainly initially. But stress and trauma are not necessarily the same, although they can be linked. So one of the ways to, to think about trauma is that, first of all, it isn't so much an objective event or an experience because research shows that the 100% of people can go through, say, the same event, and only 30% of them might actually develop PTSD. Hmm. Um, some of them might have some traumatic symptoms, but, but really not be traumatized per se. So what we've learned from that research is that trauma is much more subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. It's, it's how we experience it, as well as the, the symptoms that come up. So, for example, the common post-traumatic symptoms are things like intrusive symptoms, nightmares, flashbacks, mm. that kind of thing that are connected to the, the traumatic event. It's like a, a way of reliving it in some way, whether that's through kind of an image that comes to mind or intrusive thoughts, just not being able to stop thinking about something that's happened, or whether it's kind of a full flashback where someone is kind of fully back into uh, a traumatic situation and doesn't even realize that that they're not in touch with, with the here and now of this moment. Okay. So those symptoms can, can really vary in themselves. Um, and another aspect is, is avoidance, where people are trying not to get triggered by trauma, so they avoid certain situations or avoid talking about about things. Um, so maybe some people, in terms of COVID, don't even want to talk about COVID because as soon as they hear really much about it, then it throws them into some kind of re-experiencing intrusive. Particularly, symptom. like if they if they lost lo- sure. lost uh, loved ones. Now. You know, even losing a loved one, we all lose loved loved ones throughout our our lives. But there are different kinds of deaths, right? So, someone who's elderly and 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 dies under normal circumstances is probably not going to be as difficult. Although death is always difficult, I don't yeah. think we're ever really ready for someone we really love to die. But it's not necessarily traumatic. Whereas if something is very sudden and unexpected, you know, like the death of a child or a teenager or young adult, say in a car accident or something like that, that's not necessarily traumatic, but it could be for some people. Um, And so the same with COVID deaths. Um, Some might not be traumatic, but others might really be experienced as traumatic, especially if their loved one was, you know, I, I have heard stories of people who seem to be getting better. Um, I, I heard one just recently of, um, of someone who had been in the hospital and who had been sent home, and six hours after they were sent home took a turn for the worse and died before the ambulance could get there. Uh, uh. Now, now, that kind of situation for the spouse and the children of that person who have just had hope that, you know, they may be adjusted to the fact that that their parent, that their spouse had COVID, but hey, they got better, they just got released from the hospital, and then to all of a sudden have that turnaround, that's that's more likely to be traumatic. So when you say some of these other losses are not necessarily going to be traumatic, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you don't mean they're not serious, and they're not, you're not saying they're not serious or no. jarring, but thing, I, I guess things can be 
deeply impactful and grievous and stressful, but still not technically be trauma in the sense you're defining it. Right. Like any, any loss involves a grieving process. And so that grief can be experienced, you know, very deeply. It could be some deep, you know, depression and anger and, and questioning. But that's not necessarily traumatic. You know, it's part of the grieving process is, is part of what allows us to heal. Okay. You know, someone's not necessarily going to have flashbacks about that person dying. So does, does trauma technically n- not heal or, or not, not heal as well or as quickly? Does it just de- yes, recycle I, I, itself? Yes. That's, that's a really good question. If someone is grieving appropriately from a death, then there is a process that's, that's gone through. Now, now, there are ways that that can, too, be blocked. If someone just doesn't want to think about it, you know, they try to avoid that, then, then the grief may, may not be resolved. But if people allow themselves to, to feel the emotion, to miss the person, to, to, to kind of go through all the positive uh, aspects of that, that relationship as well as the not-so-positive aspects, it, in those ways are kind of actively dealing with it, time will take care of that as long as they aren't suppressing what our, our normal healthy reaction is to death. But trauma, unless it is specifically processed often, time doesn't necessarily heal. Mm, okay. Um, and so that, I think, is a big distinction to kind of take a look at the difference between, you know, many people may, well, research has shown already that there are many people who are more depressed as a result of COVID and implications in some way or another. Now, that's still serious. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person has experienced a trauma, okay. but they may need to deal with their depression. Okay. Is it is it fair to say that, and I, I'm, this is not a leading question, I really open an honest question. Is it fair to say that um, that the after effects of COVID in many ways have been sort of over-dramatized, not traumatized, but over-dramatized by too quickly attaching words like trauma to it? Well, it may be that sometimes trauma has been too easily linked to situations that aren't necessarily traumatic. It's kind of a perhaps a misuse of the word trauma. Okay. But I'm not sure if things have been over-dramatized because research has shown increase in mental health um, symptoms, so depression, anxiety, um, suicidal ideation. So I think those impacts are very real. Yeah, very serious. Uh, They're very serious. They may not be trauma, but they are still uh, serious issues. Okay. Well, and I guess the, the benefit of making some of these fine distinctions and even these definitional distinctions is that it can help us maybe be more fine-tuned diagnostically and re- and remedially, um, therapeutically, because not everything if not everything is trauma, there are all all kinds of levels of stress and levels of loss, and um, particularly when you're dealing with a literal worldwide, literally worldwide. Yes pandemic that has affected the entire globe, then the effects of that are going to be all over the place at all kinds of levels, all kinds of forms, all kinds of iterations, which would mean they're not going to be simplistic, one-size-fits-all 
therapies or, or solutions or, or experiences of healing. Is that, is that fair? Right. Yes. I, and that's why we, you know, as counselors, mental health professionals, you know, have diagnostic categories. The main reason for that is to be able to be most helpful. So if, if someone listening to this podcast, for example, realizes that they've been traumatized because they realize they're having nightmares about, you know, someone dying or, or losing their job or whatever it is, they're having nightmares or they're very anxious. Uh, and, and, you know, they recognize, I, I actually am experiencing some trauma symptoms, then that may require getting help in a slightly different way. But yeah, some, some unique resources. Right, some that, unique resources. Okay. And, and again, the difference between kind of the normal depression as part of grieving and, and really feeling hopeless about life, um, you know, not connected to maybe a specific grieving process. Well, you know, there are some similarities. De- depression feels like depression, but um, maybe someone might want to to get some perspective from a mental health professional to kind of go, do I need more help or do I just, am I just grieving? Okay. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Well, since, um, I mean, you're really, you're really being helpful in breaking some of this down into different categories, uh, and they're probably populated by lots of people in every category. But if you had, uh, let me ask you to do a bit of a thought experiment here. If you, if you had to pick out maybe two or three of the different categories of the after effects of COVID, from s- stress to, to trauma to inconvenience, I mean, whatever, you, you pick the categories. Pick out two or three different categories of the after effects and give us an idea of the unique types of resources or approaches that people should pursue if they find themselves in each of those categories. So talking specifically about mental health. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, kinds of things. Well, I mean, at, at, at one end, there would be um, people who have adjusted to the new normal. You know, they have they have work, have employment, or, or they've adjusted to new ways of doing things. Um, they may have some additional stress. Um, you know, I know people that after this length of time are getting really sick of there being so much virtual. They, they can do it. They're not necessarily depressed, but they're, they're, they're realizing. That's, that's a yeah, phrase I heard exactly. even in they're the last ju- week. I'm just done. Right. So I think there are, are lots of people that are just done. You know, they want to be able to see friends again and, and not have to worry um, you know, about the restrictions that maybe they've, they've been following in order to try to keep themselves or others, others safe, that they want to be with people, they want to work with people, they want to go into the office again. Um, they wish they, did, you know, they don't want to have to wear masks. Um, so that, that, that's one level. It's, there's some dissatisfaction. Um, there are some things that people want to change, but, but it's, 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 it's unpleasant. But, it, you know, they're, they're coping. Um, something in between would be you know, someone who's struggling more, you know, for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, that maybe their financial situation isn't stable or hasn't kind of fully come back yet, or there's still a lot of unknowns about the future. You know, my business is barely hanging on, but it is still hanging on. But, you know, can I, can it hang on for another two weeks, um, three months from now, if things change? 
will that be the, will that be too late? You know, so I think there are people who still have yeah, so, unknowns. Uh, kind of a precariousness to right, life, right? Right, that are kind of walking along a tightrope and aren't sure if they're going to fall off yet. That's kind of an ongoing stress that, um, you, you know, that people are, are having to still struggle with and they might come, depending what happens, they may enter a further grieving process if they do kind of fall off that tightrope or circumstances will be such that they won't even feel like they're on a tightrope anymore. They're on more solid ground. But then you have people like some of the, you know, the medical personnel who, you know, frontline workers who've been working with, with COVID. I think a lot of them have been just doing the job they need to do and, and trying to cope as best as they can. And for, for some of them, that's going to mean just having pushed aside their feelings so they can get the job done. Um, you know, the term I would use for that is, is dissociation. They've mm. had to perhaps compartmentalize and, and, and just kind of push their feelings, put their feelings in some kind of box, or they can't continue to see new patients. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the people, whether they're medical health professionals or, or other kinds of frontline workers in those ways that have been dealing with an ongoing crisis that isn't supposed to be chronic. You know, we're kind of built to, our systems are built to deal with kind of short-term crises, and then we can kind of, um, our, our physiological systems and so on can then settle in. But when there's ongoing stress of that way, some of those people are going to hit hit a limit where all of a sudden they'll have major PTSD symptoms almost when they can slow down if the crisis that's is over. It, that's when it caves For in some on people, them. that's when it mm. will cave in mm. on them. Others, it may not cave in on them, but there'll be other effects such as they don't feel an emotion anymore. So they are having trouble relating to their spouse, to their children, to their friends, because you can't just stuff emotional emotion discriminately right you know so very often if someone has to kind of compartmentalize their their feelings of of grief and pain and horror over having not been able to say save patients or see so many die without loved ones at their side um, if they have to put that away chances are they're putting away other feelings too and that can have ongoing effects yeah, yeah. Um, on, on all of their relationships if they don't choose to deal somewhere. with it so, you know, if someone's in that position, uh, when they actually have, are, are out of the cri- crisis situation enough that they can have some space to deal with some of this, to actually go and say, okay, I, I actually maybe need to go to someone, get some support, uh, whether that's a support groups, um, counsel- you know, therapy groups, see a counselor, but kind of recognize that if I keep on this way, I, I'm... I, I, I'm starting to feel like less of a human being. You know, I, I'm more like a robot. And so that would be important. The problem is that not everyone is comfortable with going to see a counselor or admitting that, that they need help. And I guess my encouragement would be whatever help someone needs, whatever has shifted for them, to not feel as though that's, that's some kind of stigma or you know the way God made us. Yeah. He did not make us to be to cope with such ongoing situations uh, without without a break. And so, uh, put this in terms of what you would love to see happen in the church. 
I know we're speaking very broadly there, but what, what challenges and opportunities does this present for the body of Christ to, to be what it ought to be for <laughs> people who are across the spectrum in how they've experienced the effects of COVID? Well, I know that, that during this past year and a bit, churches have tried to offer the kinds of support they can, but of course that's often been very difficult because it's um, virtual, mm-hmm. and uh, virtual only goes so far. I mean, I have clients who are alcoholics. There are virtual al- alcoholic anonymous groups that meet, but they tell me it's just not the same because what I mainly get from from those kinds of groups are the conversations before and after and informal interacting with people. And I think as churches, we're finding that too. Small groups aren't the same. Even if they meet as a small group, you don't have the, you're all in one conversation rather than breaking off and having little conversations with different people. Um, So, you know, post-COVID, I think people have been, churches have been doing their best. The danger is that once there's, able to be more in-person meetings again, and there was more of a sense of normal, that to kind of forget that maybe some people are still struggling. You know, it's not like, yay, you know, the, the COVID cases are really down. We can meet together. We don't have to worry about masks. And it might be tempting to kind of forget about the people that have been wounded or, or who have been struggling, who might feel some pressure to, oh, I need to be happy too. Uh, okay, I'm going to put a hook in that because that's, that's probably a number one takeaway is for churches not to forget the many people who are going to have lingering effects of all of this, but it might not, uh, might not scream at you. Right. But it's going it's to be there, and just because you can get back together again does not mean things are like they were for them. So there's so a, don't forget. Yes, yeah. and I think there there's this, well, it's not even a fine line, to be able to rejoice together as part of what the body of Christ needs to do, but to also be able to mourn together. And so not, so it doesn't mean don't rejoice, don't celebrate. We, we need that, there need to rejoice in kind of new hope and things. But it can be like a salt, you know, in a wound if in the midst of the celebration it's, it's missed that some other people are, are still struggling and grieving. And so, so to be able to do both, I think, is how, how always we care for each other best as a church, to celebrate with the victories, to celebrate with the joy, but never lose sight of who's hurting amongst us and what might they need and, and that, that those people don't need to feel shouldn't feel pressure from those around who are celebrating that, that, that they can't still be grieving, that they can't still be struggling. Um, I think that's really important. So, so in an ongoing way, offer, offering ongoing support to people, giving them permission to say it's okay if everything doesn't feel good to you right now. Isn't it interesting that, um, that the, I'm going to speak very, very broadly here, but the, the rest of the world seems so intent on things getting back to normal and us putting all this behind us as quickly as we can. And we get that. (laughs) But I hear you saying, Heather, that, um, and I'm going to put gospel language to this because I think this is an echo effect of the gospel, that the gospel gives us the, the leverage 
to lean into the effects of this and, and grieve them, to continue to acknowledge them, to continue to address them, not forget about them, mourn them, and at the same time, let's just enjoy to the hilt getting back together exactly. in as much as we can. Exactly. That, that theology of celebration that we find so uh, often punctuating the Old Testament, uh, the, the people of Israel. Right. It's these rhythms of, of both grieving and celebrating. Right. And we, and we need both. We need to be able to celebrate. That's, there's research on that, too, mm-hmm. um, that, that we need to smile. We need to laugh. Um, joy is an important part of us being healthy and whole. But so is, is the grieving. And there is a whole other area here that I don't want to forget about um, b- before we end. And one of the really unfortunate statistics of what's happened through COVID um, due in part, especially during the lockdown times, but not just then, is that child abuse and intimate partner violence across the world have skyrocketed. Okay. And and it's harder when everything's been virtual. Even teachers sometimes have been able to see more what's going on in the home, and so there've been reports made that way. But at other times, if you don't actually aren't actually seeing a child in person in the same way, you miss some of the clues that something else may be going yeah, on. Right. And so, um, unfortunately, because the abuse statistics within the church are about the same as they are in the rest of the world. We could have a whole discussion on that, and that's not the purpose of our, our time today, but that's just the reality. Then, as a church, we need to be really careful and kind of looking out for who, are, who, who among us might have been especially suffering during this time and who might especially need our help, and not being afraid to ask some direct questions at times because we know from the research that's come in that this unfortunately is a reality. I mean, think about it. People often protect themselves by being able to get out of the house um, or at least have breaks, you know, but kids haven't been, um, at least many of them haven't been going to school, so they don't have any break potentially from abusive parents. Yeah. Um, and then the same with uh, spouse abuse or, you know, you just don't have, and don't have the regular support systems um, that that there may have been before. So that's a good takeaway as well. The church needs to be very attentive. Yes. To some of those effects that might otherwise have been easy to miss. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a sobering note, but a really helpful note to end on. Um, Heather, thank you for your wise diagnostic uh, capabilities and <laughs> your wise words of of counsel for all of us, because we all. You know, on our, I guess on my more superficial days, I just want to forget about it, put it behind me, pretend it never existed. But we, as people of the gospel, have lots of uh, really fertile, even if difficult, work to do yet with each other for the healing resources of our Lord to really soak into the, the soil of our lives after all of this. And to be agents, be instruments of that with... Uh, those in our circles of influence. Heather, thanks. We've been interacting with Dr. Heather Gingrich, professor of counseling here at Denver Seminary. Grateful for her and for her ministry here. And we're grateful for you taking some time to be with us 
Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you care to contact us, you can reach us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. We would love to hear your thoughts and questions. And I want to give a special thanks again to Krista Ebert, our sound engineer, who so faithfully uh, helps us have these conversations, and Andrea Wayand and Maritza Smith and others who make this possible from behind the scenes. Uh, we're grateful for them as well. I'm Don Payne, and we look forward here at Denver Seminary and Engage 360 to talking with you again soon. So find us again. Take care.